Okay, so we're going to do an introduction to the Gospel of John now. And let's go to the notes here to get started with. Obviously, um, we're going to jump in John chapter 1 here as well. Uh, let's read, let me read the first paragraph on the notes that you have there. And it's, the Gospel of John was likely the last Gospel written. It was probably written sometime in the 90s. We really don't know. We really don't. 85, 95, we really, I, I mean, I'm, I'm suspecting it's written late. Um, some might suggest it was written earlier. Uh, if you date the death of Jesus in AD 30, that's about 60 years, maybe longer, after the death of Jesus. Um, every once in a while, someone will go, well, that, that discredits the gospel. It's like, how? Right? Uh, you know, I, have a, I had a great uncle who passed away uh, 20 years ago who was um, a prisoner in Nazi Germany for four years. Right? A POW. Right. Uh -huh. it, when he was in 1993 telling the stories of what happened 50 years earlier, are, are his testimonies like not credible? No, because he can't forget what happened to him. Well, in the Gospel of John's instance, John doesn't want to forget. It's not like John's like, oh, you know what? I almost forgot about it, but like 60 years ago, there was this guy, Jesus. I don't know. John's been telling the story for 60 years. And he doesn't want to forget the story. So it's not like, well, he's too old. or he's, you know, Being you know, 80 years old does not equate to being senile. Right? Uh, and, and he's certainly not going to forget, so it doesn't discredit it at all. Uh, but here's the next point, the reason why I brought that up, and that's this. It seems as though one of John's purposes was to answer certain questions that had arisen from the reading of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark was written to Christians who knew this basic story uh, of Jesus. But 30 to 40 years later, the readers of Mark, who were not as familiar with the story of Jesus, are now puzzled by the things that they're reading in the Gospel of Mark. So John writes to clarify matters. This is not John's primary purpose for writing, though. But it certainly seems to be the case. Let, let me give you an example, actually, in John uh, chapter uh, 3. Uh, let me make sure it's John 3. John, yeah, John 3. All right, I'm going to start at verse 20, about 22. All right, uh, it says, um, Jesus was baptizing, uh, verse, uh, verse John 3, verse 22. And then verse 23 says, And John was also baptizing near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown in prison. Well, so which John that mean? This is John the Baptist. Yeah, John the Baptist. Right, which was interesting. John, we know about John the Baptist from chapter 1 in the Gospel of John. The point of that is this. If you're reading the Gospel of John, you know that John the Baptist was in prison. Mm -hmm. Because John hasn't told us that yet. Um, so he makes a statement that assumes you know what I'm talking about. Right? John had not, had not yet been thrown in prison. Well, what do you mean? You know that already. In other words, what John is doing is, let's put it this way. If you read the Gospel of Mark, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Jesus begins his public ministry, and John the Baptist is out of the story. Okay. Words, the baptism of Jesus is then followed with the beginning of his public ministry. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus is baptized in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he goes into the, into the temple and says, I'm the temple of God. Chapter 3, he's out baptized. John the Baptist is still doing things, and so is Jesus. But you didn't know that their ministries were overlapping for a period of time. Oh, yeah. Right? Because Mark says, doesn't, doesn't give any indication. So John's filling in details and explaining things 
because you have a certain knowledge of things, and, and, and oh, here's, here's what's happening there. Make, make, a, little bit of, make a little bit of sense? You, th right. you think that's why Jesus blew him off the scene? No. Uh, I don't think that's why Jesus blew him off the scene. I, I'm not sure I would say that Jesus blew him off the scene. No, move you off. Move you off. Oh, oh move, yeah. yeah. The point of it is, is that John's ministry is fulfilled with the baptism of Jesus. Remember in, in Matthew 11, Jesus says, of any person born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Meaning John the Baptist is prior to the kingdom of God. Right? Because when the coming of Jesus is the kingdom. So John's ministry is what we might, we might say Old Testament ministry, if that, help, if that kind of helps you. And the beginning of Jesus' ministry is what we call New Testament ministry or the beginning of the kingdom of God. So, so we place John the Baptist as... as well, there's as no part. more need for John. There's really no more need for John. I mean, but there is an overlap yeah. is what's going on. All right, another example for, uh, would be this. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus appears in chapter 1 on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and says, Hey, guys! And they jump out of the boat and follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right? What, what's going on? It makes for great preaching. Because you can simply say, when Jesus calls, you get out of the boat and you follow. Mm -hmm. But when you read the Gospel of John, you find out that in chapter 1, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit falls upon Jesus. This is John chapter 1. And John the Baptist says, that's the Messiah. I was told that when, God, when, when I baptize the Messiah, the Holy Spirit will fall upon him and remain upon him. And I thought, that's the guy. Follow him. And then Andrew and Philip and Peter begin following, hey, Rabbi, where are you staying tonight? Mm -hmm. So it was Peter, John, Andrew, Philip, they've all met Jesus, and James, they've all met Jesus before. They were followers of John the Baptist, in other words. The, some of the disciples were followers of John the Baptist. And they meet Jesus, and apparently Jesus said, hey, go back to Galilee. When I'm ready for you, I'll come, I'll come get you. And then he goes to Galilee and says, hey, guys, and they jump out of the boat and say, okay, Dad, we're, we're done. Because they were waiting for Jesus. So those are details that when you read Mark, you're like, why did they jump out of the boat? I mean, how do they even know who it is? And John answers the question for us by saying, oh, there was Jesus. They met him earlier. Jesus said, you know, they followed John the Baptist said, hey, that's the guy. You need to follow him, no, no longer me. And then they go back to Galilee. And so you're, we're filling in some details that Mark's gospel is raising certain questions like, oh, that doesn't seem to make sense. And now, and now we find out kind of, kind of the reason why. Make sense? Mm -hmm. All right, here we go. John chapter 1. Obviously, the most significant verse is 1-1, uh, of course. In the beginning was the Word. We've already discussed that. That reminds us of Genesis. Mm -hmm. It's creation language. And perhaps we have this new creation. I'll say perhaps now. By the time we're done, I won't say perhaps. <laughs> it's new creation language. Okay? Uh, that's happening in Jesus. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Meaning, whoever this is that He's talking about, we know it's Jesus, of course, right? Um, is equated with God in the Old Testament. The Creator of God of, of the Old Testament. In Him was life, that life was the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, his name was John, which we know is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. I don't know if you remember this, but in the book of Acts, there's some people who know about John the Baptist, but not about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So is John writing because some of those people are still around. Mm -hmm. 
and saying, no, he's not the light. He was simply the one pointing to the light. Right? Remember, John apparently lived in Ephesus, so that seems to fit. So maybe that's what's going on there. He, uh, he came to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came, I'm sorry, verse 9. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. Uh, who are his own? The Jews. The Jews. He came to the, his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, mm-hmm. who were born not of blood, nor of the will of, ma- of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All right, we'll stop for just a second. Apparently, one of the other issues is, if Jesus is the Messiah, and by definition, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, and by definition, the fulfillment of Israel, why do the Jews not believe in him? Well, but that's a, that's, a, that's a question circulating in the first century. And John's like, well, yeah, he did come to his own, and they didn't believe in him. Well, some of them did, because we're going to find out about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and the disciples. But part of the Gospel of John's explanation is why they rejected him. Right? Remember, they're going to be the ones shouting, crucify, crucify. That, we get that narrative. You think they were nervous because of the Roman government? Oh, okay. We've we got to answer this question then. Okay. Right. We're going to go a little further then. Because right. we kind of have answered that question, but I clearly need to expound upon it some more. All right. All right. Let's, let's continue for a second. The, um, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, let me bring up the translations on this one and the, the comparison. All right. Um, the Word became flesh and, and, um, and dwelt among us, uh, ESV. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the, the New American Standard. Um, Net Bible, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. That's interesting. Uh, NIV, made his dwelling among us. New Living Translation, made his home among us. Um, word became flesh and lived among us. New Revised Standard, and dwelt among us. Um, what does the message says? The word became flesh and... Oh, the, the message is great on this. It, it, not theologically, but as far as the practicality of it comes, I'll look at it later. All right. The Greek actually says... Um, uh, it's, it's hard to see here, but it, it's the Greek word skene. There's, that's an S. That's skene. Right? The word skene, it's, it's a verb here, but the word skene is the same word used for the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So if we want to literally translate it, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Yeah, yeah, but we don't really use the word tabernacled in that, in that verbal sense very much. The word tabernacle is more of a noun for us, mm-hmm. not really much of a verb. So, all right, so the point of that is, is no, it's temple language. Okay. Now remember, the creation account in Genesis is a, is a creation of a temple. Adam and Eve are created as gardeners in the, and caretakers of that temple. Eden is a temple. If you have temple understanding of the Old Testament in the creation account, then we can read that in the John's Gospel and we're not surprised at this temple language. And note how we can confirm that this temple language, look at the next line, we saw his glory. That's the Shekinah. That's the glory of the Father. And note what happens here. We saw his glory. That's like, whoa, what? What are you talking about? In the Old Testament, who saw the glory of God? Only the high priest. He saw the glory of God. One person, once a year. But now, the glory of God is seen by we. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
In other words, it's about God tabernacling among us, but no longer in the temple, but now in the person of Jesus. So that if you behold Jesus, you're beholding the glory of God. Right? It's this temple language in the midst of a creation theme. And, and I'll explain why this is so important as we, as we proceed. Right? And I'm going to make sure that we don't go past 9.30, but this is going to be fun for me, so I'm trying not to go too far. Here we go. All right. John testified about him. Uh, um, uh, verse uh, 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, verse 18 is difficult. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, and we know who that is because John 3.16, Jesus is the only begotten. So keep the line. All right. So the only begotten God is Jesus, who's in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Okay, let's compare the translations and see if we can find an easier one um, just to make, make sense of it. Um, no one has ever seen God, the ESV says, but the only God who's at the Father's side he has made him known. And I like that he has made him known part better. Um, the, let's go with the NIV. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son. That's actually, actually an interesting translation because um, the word God is actually used there and not the word Son. Who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. So, yeah, I'm going back to John 1. Where, uh, in, in one, I'm putting the word A, a God. Yeah, which... The New World Translation does. Yes, uh, Charles H. Russell, I believe. It. Right, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, inserted that. It's absolutely impossible. <laughs> inserted an A right there. All right. No, no, no. I don't want to get up too far off, off, off on this, okay? But it's absolutely impossible to translate John 1 1. The word was with God, and the word was a God. Right. For one simple reason John's a monotheistic Jew. Right. That takes care of it. He can never have conceived of a God. Mm -hmm. Because in John, there's only one God. Yeah, because it goes back to, to Arius' teaching in the third century, in the, in the beginning of the fourth century, in the heretic, and the idea that Jesus is not equal with the Father and the denial of the Trinity is what, what it really comes down to. Right. Um, furthermore, the Greek context is no way to translate this. Now, in Greek, there is no word A. You can't say A. Okay. You can say the, but you don't have to. And we don't always do it even in, in English. And, and the reasons when they use it and when they don't, don't actually follow English as e easily, but, but then there's just simply no way to translate this Greek phrase as the word was a God. It has to be translated as the word was the, uh, the God. But uh, if I can skip over that for now, I have an article I can share with you uh, uh, on that. All right, here's the point, though. In John 1.18, there's actually, there's a, God's referred to twice. Uh, no one has ever seen God. Um, uh, so I'll, let me show it to you in the Greek. Uh, here's Theos. So no one has ever seen, uh, uh, ever, uh, seen God. All right, that's, how we, that's the first clause. All right, the monogenes, the, the, the only begotten or the only one or the, or the unique one. Uh, genes means birth or begotten and uh, mono only or one. Theos, God. The one who is in the bosom of the Father, he has um, explained him, but maybe better said, it made him known. The point is, is that the word theos is twice here referring to two different individuals. The first time, no one has ever seen God, clearly as a reference to the Father, and he's even named the Father here, Patras, the Father. All right? And the second one is the monogenes theos, the, the one and only God, or the only begotten God. All right? And we know the only begotten is Jesus in John 3.16, for God's love of the world he gave his only begotten. So monogenes <coughs> is used of Jesus in John 3.16, so monogenes theos has to be Jesus. Right? So, but John's a monotheist. But we've got two gods here. 
One is the father, and the other one is in the bosom of the father, or, uh, yeah, in the bosom, kolpan, in, in the bosom of the father, RSV. Um, uh, he's in close relationship with the father. He, he's in the, he's, when you're in the bosom of the father, that means you're at the right hand of the father, and when you're reclining at a table, you, you, you lean back. So you recline on your left side, right, if you're at a banquet. And when you recline back, the person behind you, right, you're at his right hand. So you're in the bosom. So Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom in Luke 16. He, he's seated at the right hand of Abraham. All right. The point of that is that Jesus is in this close relationship with the Father. And what we know about the Father is that no one's ever seen him. Going back up to the English here. No one's ever seen God. All right. uh, NIV. Uh, no one's ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. All right. Here's the key. And here's why this is so significant. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will walk with you. Right? This is the great promise of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the great covenant promise. You'll be my people, I'll be your God, we're going to have this covenant relationship, and it's going to be great. And I'll abide with you, I'll walk with you. Okay? Now, God walked with Israel, or ab uh, uh, he abided with Israel, but he was in a tent, and then later on in a temple. And only the high priest could see him, and him only once a year. Now, Jesus is that God manifested. That God walking among us, and we can all see him. Right? Remember, the, the whole earth will be full of God's glory, as the psalmist says. The point of it is, God never intended to dwell in a building for eternity. He intended to dwell with all humanity throughout all of the earth. The Old Testament was only a, 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 the, in, the, the beginning of this promise. Well, well I'm going to dwell amongst Israelites, but even then only the high priest can see me. And I'm only going to dwell in this one place. With the coming of Jesus now, he, the, 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 the people among whom he's dwelling is expanding. The place is still limited. It's still the body of Jesus, and it's only in one place at one time. But the people among whom he's, he's, he's appearing amongst, or who are beholding his glory, is now, it's now growing and growing and growing. Okay. This is going to be very important. And, and here's the reason why I'm going to explain this in a couple different ways. In one sense, you could actually argue that the Holy Spirit is more important in the Gospel of John than Jesus. You think, well, Rob, it's a Gospel. By definition, the Gospel is a biography of Jesus. We have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm telling you, folks, the Holy Spirit's more important in the Gospel of John than Jesus. Okay. By John 13... Jesus' answer is, in John, 4, John 14, in particular, I'm leaving. Yeah. And it's for your good that I go. Yeah. Right? That's by John 14. Okay? So let's, let's, let's continue to expand this. So, so here we go. So that goes with greater words you will do? That, that's correct. It, it absolutely does. Let, let's continue to expand. All right, next thing to notice is this. And I'm going to mention this very, very, very quickly in passing uh, without being able to elaborate on this. But remember the creation theme. Okay, so here we go. Uh, John chapter 1. I'm just going to look at this in my Bible if you want to follow along. Verse 29. The next day. Okay, that makes the second day, correct? Because that means whatever happened in verse 28 was the first day. 29 is now the second day. Verse 35. The next day. That's the third day, correct? Verse 43. The next day. That's the fourth day. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day. Now you're like, well, we don't know how to count that one. Let's be honest. We can't, uh, uh, how do we count that one? 
If the last day was the fourth day, does the third day mean five, six, and seven? Because that would be seven days. That's a week. And notice what happens on that seventh day. If that's, if that's correct, what happens on the seventh day? Jesus turns water into wine. He does his first miracle. And his first miracle is turning water into wine. Now remember, a new covenant I make with you. And this new covenant is in my blood. Is this the new creation? The old water is being replaced with the new wine. Maybe. We'll, we'll, I'll leave it at that. Maybe. Okay. I think it is, but I'll leave it as maybe. All right. Now, note what happens, by the way, is he goes in the temple and he says, destroy this. And, and, and what happens at the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it was at the end of Jesus' ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is Jesus goes in the temple and says, uh, God's going to destroy this place. And, and he overthrows the money change of tables. And John's gospel what happens at the beginning. Now, we won't have time to grapple with that, but that's okay. He goes on to say, this, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Mm-hmm. It took us four or six years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But he's speaking about the temple of his body. Mm-hmm. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scriptures, I'm in verse 22, and, they, and the word which Jesus had spoken. Okay, let's go to the handout for a moment here, uh, the notes uh, anyways. And, and I'll, and I'll uh, the very, it's probably the very last page. You don't have the notes on the Gospel of John? It's, it's, it's the same thing I gave last week. It's, it's nothing new. And I, then I, I sent it back out again anyways, I think, uh, in an email. I never did. I okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll get some copies to you. Okay. Actually, I have a copy in here. Just uh, one quick question. Okay. Yeah, please. Good. Here you go. Is there any significance whether it's the seventh day or the third day? Share it. Share it. Share it. Is there any significance whether it's the seventh day or the third day? If, 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 good question. The significance would be the fact that God created the world in seven days. And if we have a th- creation theme going on, then John begins chapters one and two with the framing of seven days. And what happens on the seventh day is he turns water into wine, and it seems to suggest this new creation. The wine is representing this new creation. Because, of course, the wine is, represents, later on we know from communion, his blood. Right? And that, and that is what is the basis of the new creation, is his death and resurrection. So, that seems to be a lot, reading into it a lot, but I don't actually think it is. I think that's actually correct. But what's correct? The seventh day or is it? That, that it is the seventh day, and that the wine represents the new creation. And remember the, wa- the significance of the waters in the Eucharist. Verse 29. 29. And the third day is, is 35. 35. And the next day is, is 43. All right. Now it could also be there could also be another day in there, but don't worry about it. Okay. And so the third day could be three days later. It just depends on how you count it, because they count it inclusively sometimes. One being the first day, two being the right. So remember, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. But that was Sunday. That was only two days later. Hmm. So, it depends. so this, you could read the third day here as day six or day seven. Or day three. No. Or, or day three. It says in the third day. Th- that's correct. But then what's later. the first and second day? And, and then you're, you go back to the fact where you have at least four days in the earlier chapter. So it, it seems to be the, the third day from the day that he, the last one he mentioned. Okay. I yeah. read it a different way. I read yeah. it 29 uh, as being the second day. 
Oh, and this is the third day? 35 being the continuation of the second day. Oh, yeah, yeah. 3 being the third day, and then it continues. Later on that third day? day. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I, but, okay. but, but again, let, we'll go further with this idea of creation, and, and, I'll, and, and if it okay. seems to stand up later, then it seems that we're reasonable here, but we're never going to be able to, to, to confirm this. There's okay. no way we can confirm either one. So, Okay, uh, here we go. Now, next thing to note is, <coughs> all right, so note the temple reference then in chapter 2. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Note the temple reference there. All right. And then actually, I'm not going to start now. Let's take a break now. And then, uh, so we're going to pick it back up now. John 3. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention some stuff uh, in, uh, quickly here. But note in John 3, Jesus meets a man named Nicodemus. Uh, he tells Nicodemus in verse uh, 3, Truly I say to you, you have to be born again, or you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Right? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I was going to show you something on the notes that I didn't, I didn't finish doing, did I? So that's when we got, uh, hey, I don't have the notes. So let's, let's look at the notes really quickly, and let me sh- t- show you what I was going to show you there. All right, and that is, I'm, on, I'm not sure what page it is, but it, start, it looks like this. Uh, an interesting feature of the Gospel of John is his use of irony. You guys all see that on the notes? It should be near the last page. Mm-hmm. What page is it on? Find out what page it's on. Nine. Page nine? nine. Mm-hmm. Page nine, all right. So an interesting feature of the Gospel of John is his use of irony and misunderstandings. So let's read through that. And irony occurs when John implies more than he says. This happens when his opponent, the opponents of Jesus, will make a statement about Jesus that is derogatory or sarcastic, etc. Yet the statement is actually more true or meaningful than they actually suppose. For example, the Jews claim to know where Jesus is from in 727. Yet they refuse to accept the truth that he's from God, 728. Pilate declares, here is the man, in chapter 19, verse 5, which, of course, he's actually much more than the man than Pilate realizes. Pilate meant something like, look at this despicable, beaten person, but John knows, as, and we should also, that Jesus really is the man. With most of the ironies, we, the readers, actually recognize the irony. But the Jews miss the very Messiah. Uh, I'm sorry, but the character in the story is actually unaware. So, for example, the high priest will say, you know, actually it's a good idea for one man to die for the sake of the nation. Mm-hmm. We all know that that one man's dying for the sake of the nation. The high priest thinks if we kill him, it will spare the nation. Mm-hmm. But we, the reader, knows, and John knows that we know, that his death is actually the saving grace of the nation. That's irony. Make sense? All right. Now, another feature is in the Gospel of John is misunderstandings. This is, this is actually more common. This is where Jesus makes a statement, like, I'm the temple of God. Okay? And the statement is actually unclear. It's either ambiguous, meaning multiple meanings, or even metaphorical, like I'm actually not a building, but I'm actually the temple of God. All right. His partner in conversation, like Nicodemus now in chapter 3, is going to respond by t- taking Jesus' remark literally. Nicodemus, you must be born again. What's Nicodemus say? I can't enter my mother's womb a second time. He takes the statement literally, which shows that he misunderstands what Jesus is saying. Uh, That shows that the spiritual meaning has eluded him. And John then explains the true meaning. So irony he doesn't explain because we already get it. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. One man dies for the sake of the nation, we get it. Misunderstandings, John's going to explain. John then explains the true meaning which leads to a deeper revelation for the reader. 
Note the following examples. Chapter 2, Jesus is the temple of God, but the temple he spoke of was his body. After he rose from the dead, then we understood what he meant. They took him literally, it took us 46 years to build this temple. Mm-hmm. And in three days, you've got to raise it up. John then explains for us, the reader, what actually he means. The temple he was speaking of was his body. All right, chapter 3, Nicodemus says, he says, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how can that happen? All right, and Jesus says, you have to be born of water and the Spirit or you can't enter my kingdom. All right. Chapter 4, he meets a woman in a well. You should have asked me. Let's actually look at that passage because it's, it's quite relevant to where we want to go. John 4, verse 10. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, John 4, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it, who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But she's going to misunderstand him, right? So what does she do? Sir, verse 11, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? And the answer is, yes, I am. Who gave us the well and drank of it himself. And Jesus answered and said, verse 13, Everyone who drinks the water, this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or come here and draw water. No, she's still thinking literal water, isn't she? And why does she want it? So I don't have to come out here to draw water in the middle of the day. Right? For, for, for physical, material reasons. I st- all right, um, uh, there. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. All right, now, I'll go back to the outline. Here we go. Um, Jesus is the, the food. He's the bread from heaven. My bo- you have to eat my body and drink my blood or you have no life in yourself, right? Of course, that's a great issue for Refor- Reformation theology um, there. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Uh, uh, I'm going, the truth will set you free. Let's see. Uh, Lazarus is asleep in, in, in John chapter 11. Oh, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. <laughs> Lazarus is dead, right? Um, uh, let's see. Uh, well, let's, uh, you've seen the following. Right, so th- those are examples of um, misunderstanding of the Gospel of John. All right, now let's go back to John 3, 4, and 5. Here's, what, here's what's going on. Nicodemus and a woman. The woman's unnamed. Nicodemus is named. Nicodemus meets Jesus at night. She meets Jesus in the middle of the day. Both instances are about water. He's a Pharisee. She's a Samaritan. Right? See the contrast between the two. What's, what's going on? In both cases, it has to do with water. Right? Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. And that should be verse, I think, 5 and 6. Um, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Chapter 4. The woman says, uh, where are you going to get this water? It's living water. If you, if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. It'll become a well, him, a, a, a well of water uh, to eternal life. Now let's go to John 7. I'm going to keep it simple. Let's go to John 7. Because what's he getting at? Well, we don't really know yet. But now look at what happens in John 7. I'm going to be in verse 37. John 7, 37. On the last and the great day of the feast, and we'll maybe discuss the context later. John 7, 37. On the last and great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and uh, stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him 
were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's been talking about the Holy Spirit all along, folks. Nicodemus said to be born of water in the Spirit. You should have asked me and I'd give you living water. What, what are you talking about? But this he spoke of the Spirit. So see how the Spirit is actually the focus in chapter 3 and 4 and commenting in 7. It's going to lead us to the fact that I think the Spirit of God is actually more prominent or maybe as prominent as Jesus is in John's Gospel. Remember, John's writing to compliment Matthew, Mark, Luke. You already know the story. No, 93% of John's Gospel is unique to John's Gospel. Uh, and that statistic might be, that might be slightly off. I'm thinking of another statistic also, and I may have them confused. But even still, if it's 90%, it doesn't matter. It's, it's something like that. It's, it's an extremely high number. Most all of the Gospel of John is unique to John because you already know the stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So when John tells a story then, by the way, that you already know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's obviously pretty important because I'm repeating it even though you already, you've already read that. And, and, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, by the way, is one of the, it's the only miracle in all four Gospels. Okay. Because it leads in the Bread of Life discourse. Okay, let's go back to the notes here for a second now. And let me also make mention of a couple things, and then, and then I'm going to go back to this idea of the Spirit. All right, so if we go up to, um, uh, you see it in bold here. This must be, page, is that the bottom of page 7? Where it says in chapter 2, 1 through 4, 54, Jesus is working on miracles on the institutions in Judaism. Is that the bottom of 7? or What page is that? 7. seven. Okay, bottom of 7. All right, so... Uh, 2, 1 through 4.54, he's working on miracles to, uh, fulfilling the institutions of Judaism. In 2, 1 through 12, this, these water jars that he turns into wine, it says that they're stone water pots. Stone pots are used for ceremonial cleansing. Hmm. This is a priest's home. They're very significant. This isn't for washing your hands. It's ceremonial because stone doesn't convey impurities. So sacred water, in other words, it's holy water, if you want to, I wouldn't call it that because that conveys something in, in our modern English that, that probably isn't what it, what it meant, meant them. But it's sacred water. All right. He turns that into wine. In chapter 2, 13 through 25, the temple is fulfilled by me. That temple is no longer important, it's me. He goes to Jerusalem and speaks to a rabbi. He goes to Samaria and he, and he, and he talks to a woman at a well and he's better than the well. The, the water I have is better than the water from Jacob's well. All right? And then uh, he returns to Cana, which is uh, interesting and inclusio, because notice chapter 2 begins in Cana, and 4 ends in Cana. Okay? So there seems to be a little inclusio. Right, in 5, 1 through 10, 42, we just don't have time to flush this out, obviously. Um, Jesus appears at major festivals and fulfills in himself what the feast was pointing to. In other words, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is fulfilling the institutions and feasts of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. The Sabbath, that's about me. The Passover, I'm the bread of life. Note, he declares himself the bread of life during the feast of Passover. All right, the passage that we just read, John 7, 51, uh, 1-52, is during the Feast of Tabernacles, which we don't have time to, to delve into. But if you do a study on the Feast of Tabernacles, you'll note that it's a feast of light and water. Hmm. During that feast, he declares that he, the water he was speaking of was the Spirit. During that feast, he says, I'm the light of the world. 
So this light and water are significant elements of the, in fact, you can't understand the Feast of Tabernacles unless you understand what's going on with light and water. And Jesus declares, I'm the light of the world during the Feast of Tabernacles. Or during John's description of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Hanukkah, which is not in our Bible, but it's added because of, 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 of the Apocrypha, uh, taking place in the second century BC. Um, uh, and it refers to the fact that the temple was rededicated. What happened was, the temple had fallen into the control of a Greek uh, general. Um, this is the rebuilt temple, which is not the temple of Herod. That, that, well, it kind of is. But the temple was destroyed by the, by, um, the Babylonians in 586 um, uh, BC. They rebuilt it in 516. It's a little hut. Okay? And then Herod elaborates that temple and adorns it. That's the one that took 46 years to be built. Mm-hmm. Herod's elaborations and adorning and, and magnifying of that, of that little hut. Right. Mm-hmm. That little hut falls in the control of a Greek general who sacrifices a pig on the altar. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's his, uh, and then erected a, an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Wow. Okay? That's like the epitome, you know, no other gods in my presence, that's like as bad as it gets. Okay. Well, the Jews conquered that, uh, conquered that and, and, and through a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt, which is the book of Maccabees. Um, and they took control of that temple three years later. By the way, they, they refer to it as three and a half years later. So you're, 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 you're in uh, Catholicism right now. Well, not really in Catholicism because they, they are... Catholics, we're in Judaism right now. Mm-hmm. Catholics are simply saying that the book of Maccabees, at least two of the four books, mm-hmm. are belong in the Old Testament. Belong in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. So it's not Catholicism. It's Jewish history. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, Maccabees are good history books. Catholics believe they're inspired history, but we think they're just good history. Mm-hmm. That, that's all it is. It's so in those historical books, we hear about the temple being rededicated because they took back over its control, and that's what the Feast of Hanukkah is about, okay? or the Feast of Rededication. All right? um, and during that, Jesus declares himself to be the consecration, etc., uh, etc. Et right? The point is, when you go through chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, it's happening at these major festivities, and what Jesus does and says at the major festivities shows that he's claiming to be the fulfillment of those festivities, of those feasts. Those feasts were pointing to me. The easiest one for us to reckon with is, I'm the bread of life, happening during the Feast of Passover. Okay, we don't have time to, to delve into that too much. All right. Now, what we're going to do now, though, is, before we go further, is we have to go back to the book of Ezekiel for something, or it won't make as much sense. This water theme is running through the Gospel of John. We already saw the clue, the water refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit, but we're going to go to Ezekiel 40 through 47. Oops, wrong direction. Ezekiel 40 through 47. All right. Um, And I'm probably just going to go to 47, but let me see if I want to reference Ezekiel 40 just for a moment. Okay. Um, If you ever studied the end times, whatever, in in my opinion, some of the the crazy, wacky stuff out there um, makes a big deal about Ezekiel's temple. Right. So if you do like a search on Ezekiel's temple on Amazon, you're going to get all kinds, in my opinion, wacky books. Right. Um, and the idea is that Ezekiel's prophesying about a temple in the last nine chapters. Ezekiel 40 through 48. He describes this quote-unquote end times temple. Now what the, I think, my opinion, kind of the wacky end times fanatical stuff out there is, is that Ezekiel's temple has never been built. So therefore, it has to be rebuilt before Jesus comes back. Because Ezekiel prophesies a temple that has to be rebuilt. 
that has to be built. And this temple has never existed before. Right? Now, by the way, it's impossible to build this temple because we don't have all the dimensions. Mm -hmm. you, you can't build it. You don't know all the dimensions of it. All right? it, it it's, it's, it's impossible to construct. All right. But what happens now, uh, and, and, and maybe I'll touch on this in our study of the book of Revelation here in our, our last night together. Um, but Ezekiel 40 through 48, the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, are actually very strongly paralleled by the last four chapters in the book of Revelation, chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22. In fact, they almost simply follow one another. It's almost as if John's kind of, loosely at least, reading Ezekiel 40 through 48 as he writes Revelation 19 through 22. Okay? So I think there's your fulfillment. It's the new Jerusalem. Okay? But the fulfillment actually goes back a little bit earlier, and I write about this in my book, um, uh, in a couple of my books, um, uh, Understanding the New Testament and the End Times, I, I deal with this chapter, these chapters a little bit also. But both Revelation and Ezekiel, John's uh, John and Ezekiel are describing a city, right, the New Jerusalem, that is a temple, right, that is the people. The New Jerusalem is actually, the, he, he says, come, let me show you the bride. And I looked and behold, I saw a holy city coming down. See, the city is the bride. So also, Revelation, uh, Ezekiel is describing a city, which is a temple, which is a bride. Okay. Uh, and you see that in Ezekiel 40, he says, uh, verse 2, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. There's your first clue. High mountains are almost synonymous with temples because temples are always at the top of a high mountain. Okay, uh, um, there. But look what he says. He says, and it was, I saw a structure like a city. So it's a temple, but it's a city. Okay. Now we're going to skip to chapter 47 because this is really all we really need to get into. Um, uh, to understand what's happening in the Gospel of John. I, I think this is powerful. And, and uh, it's, a, it's powerful, and I hope I get to the point of why all this matters for us uh, in, our, in our lives as, as followers of Christ, as well as in our ministries, for those of you that are in ministry, and, and, for, the, and for the church. Why, why all of what we're talking about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the significance of it, and then we're going to see this play out in Acts uh, in the New Testament. Uh, Ezekiel 47, verse 1, he says, um, Then he brought me back, it's an angel, an uh, messenger, essentially, uh, he brought me back uh, to the door of the house. The house is the temple. Okay, it, it is the temple. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. All temples face east. Right? The Jerusalem temple faced east. All temples in ancient world face east. By the way, the early church, when they finally started building buildings, they all faced east also. That's just simply the way they do it. So that's where Muslims get the idea from. It, it's, it's just ancient religious ideas. Temples face east. Because east is where the sun rises. Hmm. And in the ancient world, there's no guarantee that the sun's going to rise the next day. So, in fact, east in Greek means literally the land of the rising sun, which you would just translate as east. Okay. Um, all right. So, so it's, a, it's a temple. For the house faced east. So we know it's a temple. And water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. So water's coming out from the temple, from the altar, from the, ultimately from the throne. And it's coming out through the door, and it's going to the east. And he brought me by, out by, verse 2, uh, by way of the north gate, and he led me around the outside of the outer gate, by, the, by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, the water was trickling from the south side. I just have one question about facing Good. the east. Were they, when they buried the dead, did the head face the east? And that's, that's what's going on. I don't. I'd have to look it up. To this day. I'd have to look it up. I wouldn't be surprised. They face the west because of Jesus. Come they back. face the west. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I don't know that one there. That's what but. they said. That's what happened. Okay, maybe so. 
right, here we go. Uh, water was trickling, that's, and that's key. Now verse 3. When the man uh, went out toward the east with a line, and he has a, a measuring rod. When you see a measuring rod in prophetic scripture, it means whatever's being measured is being divinely protected. So in John, in Revelation 10, John has a measuring rod. Uh, in Zechariah 1, he's measuring something. And the measuring something means God's sovereignly protecting whatever's being measured. Okay? Not, not completely relevant here, but that's the significance there. And it will come up in Revelation. All right. Um, Man, he had a, had a measuring line in his hand, and he measured a thousand cubits. And he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. It's getting deeper. He measured a thousand, led me through the water, water reaching the knees. And he measured a thousand, he led me through water, water, water reaching the loins. Now note, by the way, this is actually impossible. Because the only way a river can get deeper is if there's tributaries adding to it. So if water's flowing from the temple, it ain't going to get deeper as it goes. It's going to get shallower as it goes. Because water evaporates. Or it gets absorbed into the ground. It only gets deeper if there's tributaries. But this water's getting deeper and there's no tributaries. Because it's coming from the throne. Right? All right. So that's another reason why you don't take this as some literal physical building that's actually going to be built with some river coming out of it because th this is an impossibility in, in this literal sense of the, of the word. And I don't like literal versus spiritual. I think that's confusing. But nonetheless, here we go. Uh, verse 5. He measured a thousand as a river which I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me to the, uh, back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold... On the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, these go out to water, uh, toward the east region, and they go down into the Arabah. Arabah is a Hebrew word that means desert. I don't know why they didn't translate it here. It just means the desert. If you go east of Jerusalem, you go over the Mount of Olives. That's due east of the temple. All right? And then from the Mount of Olives, it goes straight downhill to the, to the Dead Sea. Uh -huh. The desert, the Arabah. Okay, that's the desert. Okay? The lowest place on earth, by the way, right? Uh, the, the, the Dead Sea. All right. Um, and note what it says. Uh, they go out toward the sea. It's the Dead Sea. It's not the Mediterranean. It's not going west. It's going east. Okay. And the waters of the sea become fresh. Hmm. If you're not aware of the Dead Sea, it's the Dead Sea because everything in it is dead. There, there's nothing alive. There's nothing in it. Um, the, the salt content is 37% in the Dead Sea. The Salt River has 6% salt content. So that's just show. Uh, if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, you cannot sink. It's impossible to sink. All right, you float. All right, in fact, if how you try to stand thick, up... Give me a comparison to how thick the water is. I don't know how to compare it. It's thick. <laughs> All right, and, uh, it, it, the point is this. If you go in with your sandals on, for, and usually you walk in with your sandals because it's hard to get in, the, in there without it. Um, your, your feet just want to do this. And they just want to go up. And then you just lay on your back. All right. Now, you, by the way, you can't get this water in your eyes. It will, it will hurt. It'll be, it's nasty. And then ladies, you know, they always, ladies, if you shave in the morning, you don't go in because it, it's just nasty. All right, all right. So this is really, really dead water. But look what happens. The water becomes fresh. It will come about that every living creature where the, which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there'll be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the other waters become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. It will come that will fishermen will stand there from Engedi to Enaglaim, which is, and the, that's where the Dead Sea. Engedi is the, this, um, where David wrote, as a deer panther for the water, so my soul long after. That was at the springs at Engedi, right? these underground water springs. Right, that's on the bank of the Dead Sea. It's no longer the bank of the Dead Sea because it's dried up so much. You're like several miles inland now, but at the time of this, it was the bank of the Dead Sea. Okay. 
So, and, and so it's the Dead Sea. The fish will be according to their kinds. That's creation language. And the fish will be uh, like the fish of the Great Sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea that it's comparing it to. But if swamps and marshes will, will, will not become fresh, well, they will be left for salt. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be food and their leaves for healing. Thus says the Lord, this shall be the boundary by which you shall divide the land, the inheritance amongst the twelve tribes, etc., etc. Alright. Note, whatever this is, it's water coming from the temple. And it's water that causes life. New creation life. So that's the fish of the sea and, and according to their kinds. Revelation 22 is going to describe almost the exact same thing. There's going to be a river coming from the throne of God. Revelation 22, 1. Right, and I'm, going to, I'm actually going to, I'm going to show you that. Go ahead, please. Go ahead. Revelation oh, 22. The sea of glass, uh, transparency of this water we're talking about now. Not transparency, but clarity. Clearly. Can you see through it? Uh, I, I, I think it's a, um, an irrelevant question. Uh, and the reason why is because the text, I don't think that's what the text is leading us oh, to ask okay. those kind of literal kind of questions. All right. This isn't a literal river actually literally coming from a literal temple. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Now, that doesn't mean it's spiritual only because that, like, that's the that's way our Western minds think. If it's not literal, it's spiritual. No, no. Jesus is the temple, correct? Right. 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 Is he literally the temple? Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. He's not literally the temple as always a block of wood. Right? So it's like, no, Jesus is spiritually the temple. No, he's, it's literally and physically, he's, he is the temple of God. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind, and then maybe I'll, I'll answer your question here in, in just a moment. All right, look at Revelation 22, 1 for just a moment. We've got to get back to the Gospel of John, I realize. We're going where? I, I put Revelation 22 up on the, up on the, uh, on the screen there. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, which seems to parallel Ezekiel. All right. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Remember the river? On either side, there were, actually were trees. Mm -hmm. In Revelation, there's only one tree, but note that one tree is on both sides of the river, which can't literally be true. Right? You can't have one tree. On, but that's, that doesn't matter. That's not the point. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, which is exactly what we saw in Ezekiel 47. Yielding its fruit every month, Ezekiel 47. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Okay. So you see the parallel. The ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel 47 is Revelation 22. Okay? The new Jerusalem. So that's why we don't need some end times. The Ezekiel's temple is not going to be built before Jesus comes back. It's ultimately being built now in the church, and ultimately it will be built in the climax in the new Jerusalem. Okay, now, uh, let's go to the Gospel of John. Uh, back to the Gospel of John here. All right. First thing is this. Jesus says, I'm the temple of God. Secondly, he's referring to living water, which seems to parallel Ezekiel 47 which he's referred to as the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm going to pick up that, this theme in just a minute, but we're going to start in John 12 now. Okay. Um, uh, and then we'll make our way. We should be okay with time. Okay. And we're going to get to new creation and then why all this is important for us. Okay. Uh, John 12. Let's see. Uh, I'm going to skip down to verse... I want to go about... Let me bring up my Bible here so I can look at it this way. Okay. John 12, uh, verse uh, 20. Uh, actually, I'm going to read verse 19 because it's an interesting reference there. And then we'll go to verse 20. All right. All right. So the Pharisees said to, one, said to one another, 
You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Interesting statement, right? Look at the next verse. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. The whole world's going after him. And then he introduced some Greeks. It's the first reference to Greeks, i.e. Gentiles, in the Gospel of John. They came to Philip, who's the only disciple of Jesus with a Greek name. So likely, if any of the disciples of Jesus speak our language, it will be this guy. So they go to Philip. Hey, Philip. Uh, uh, verse uh, 20. Uh, they came, I'm sorry, verse 21. They came to Philip. Who was, all, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, we'll look at the geography next time we meet, and began to ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone, remains alone but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to the eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, uh, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came, uh, I came this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Does that have anything to do with the request of the Greeks? It's like, Jesus, great sermon, awesome. Um, sorry, these Greeks want to see you. Right. No, right. no, the Greeks want to see you, and Jesus' answer is, the hour has come. Yeah. It let him know it's at that point in time. That's right, it's time. In the Gospel of John, we see the phrase, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. They tried to lay hands on him, but his hour had not yet come. They tried to do this to him, but his hour had not yet come. This is the first time we see in the Gospel of John his hour has come. And note, it happens when the Gentiles come to Jesus. Okay? I think I said this week one with you guys. Um, um, but if not, let me repeat it now anyways. This is going to sound blasphemous. Did I say this right? Uh, it's going to sound blasphemous, but, it, but uh, trust me, I don't believe it is, and it's not. All right, here we go. Jesus didn't finish the job. Remember I said this week one, right? Jesus didn't finish the job. Now, the reason why that sounds blasphemous is because the job is usually defined as what? what what's, what's his do, what was his job? To die on the cross. To die on the cross. And to say he didn't finish the job, that would be blasphemous. Because he did die on the cross. And he did rise from the dead. He did pay for our sins and atone for wickedness and defeat death by rising from the dead. But that's not all the job. The job was to proclaim Christ, proclaim the Father to the nations. I will bless all nations through your seed, Abraham. And if Jesus is Israel, then Israel's task was to be a light to the nations. Remember, that's why he overthrows the money changer tables, because my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. You haven't done your job. But note, when the Greeks come to Jesus, he doesn't say, okay, great, let's go to the nations. He says, it's time for me to die. My hour has come. His hour has come for what? Well, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies. Yeah. So that was one of his purposes. 
Yeah. And I was, I'm coming to die. And then what we're going to see in chapter 13, 14, and following is, and you are going to go to the nations. Because he's, he basically, what I'm hearing you say is, <clears throat> once these, the, the, the nations, all I'm hearing heard is words and stuff, there's no more use for him to be here. No, once Israel's heard his word. Yeah. And then the nations come in. No, that's not my job. That's your job. Yeah. You take the gospel of the nations. My, now, he does go to the nations, right? The Syrophoenician woman and a few other, right? But that's not his ministry. Even to the Syrophoenician woman, he says, you know what? You can't take food from the, uh, and, and give it to the dogs. Yeah, but sir, even the dogs eat some of the crumbs that fall from the, from the table. Okay, I'll give you some crumbs. But clear indication in Mark 7, I came for the house of Israel and then I'm sending you to the nations. Right. So now, chapter 13, he begins to prepare the disciples for going to the nations. And what's the first thing that he does? He washes their feet. Mm. Now, go back to what we said at the beginning. We have some temple thing going on. Because it started off with, we beheld his glory, and he tabernacled among us. And then the next chapter was, I'm the temple of God. So we know we've got this temple thing going on here, so we can't forget that also. We've got water and spirit, creations, maybe seven days in chapter, chapters one and two. Certainly in the beginning was the word, is creation. We've got creation, temple, water, spirit. We have all these themes going on. Okay. John 13, he washes their feet. Because you are going to become the temple of God. And in order to be the temple of God, you must be clean. Purification is what was necessary to enter the temple. Mm -hmm. You have to be ceremonial. That, that's what the stone water pots are for. He's cleaning the disciples' feet because he's going to make them the temple. I think that's the case, but we'll, we'll see as we move on. Chapter 14. Okay. And I don't want to beat this one too much, but, but um, I, I think this is... I, this is one of the passages I think is commonly misinterpreted. Hmm. Um, Gary Burge, who's a, who's a New Testament scholar and a Johannine scholar and is a friend of mine, him and I have had these conversations a, a little bit about this. And actually, I have a podcast where I interviewed Gary on a, uh, for a couple of different podcasts. Um, uh, and, and I think we differ a little bit on this, but I think, he, I think he would acknowledge pretty much what I'm about to say. And he's one of the most prominent Johannine scholars in the, in the, in the, in the church today. What we, what we read in John 14 is, Jesus, here's, here's the common interpretation. I'm going to go away, but it's for your good that I go, because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and then someday, I'm going to go prepare a place for you up here. This is, the, this is the common interpretation that I don't agree with. I'm going to go up to heaven, I'm going to prepare a place for you to heaven, and someday I'm going to take you to heaven and be with me. Okay. I'm sorry, folks, that, that's not... What we see in Scripture is, that thy kingdom come on earth as it is, that heaven and earth are going to become one. See, in the New Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, I saw the Holy City coming down out of heaven to the earth. Right? right? Look what Jesus says, John 14, 1. All right. Um, and uh, let's see if I can bring it up. Come on. Come back to life. There you go. Yeah, God bless you. John 14, 1. Uh, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. So he has to go in order to prepare a place. That doesn't mean he's going there to prepare a place. He just has to go to prepare the place. The place could be here. Let me see if that, if that, if that works. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you to myself. Not I will come again and take you there. I'll come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me or but through me. So wherever the place is, it's the place where the Father is. We're going to the place where the Father is, right? Um, if you had known me, verse 7, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? All right, now let me side note for this for, for, for a second. Go back to what we discussed earlier. And this is, this is on your outline, so, so you can look at it later. The thesis statement in the Gospel of John is chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who's in the Father's bosom or the intimate place with the Father, has made him known. No one has seen God, but Jesus has come and made the Father known. That, right? That's a simple way of, 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 of translating. All right. Now, the whole goal of Israel was to make God known. Adam and Eve were to bear God's image, i.e. to make God known. The role, the, the, to be human is to reflect God's nature and character and thereby make him known, to be his image bearer. You set your whole Bible to make him known. That, that, that's the, that is the thesis theme, the theme of the Bible is to make God known. Right? Jesus has come to make him known. That's the thesis statement in the Gospel of John. The climactic moment in the Gospel of John is John 14, verse 9. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I have made him known. I'm the only begotten God, or the one and only God. Right? Who was with the Father, John 1, 1, right? 1 through 3, and is, is equal with God. The word was with God, and the word was God. Now, by the way, the word was with God means the word is not God. He's with him. So there's, there's the beginning of your, of your Trinitarianness now, right? He's with the Father, so he's not the Father, but he's also, but he's also God. And he's made the... So John 14, 9, I have made the Father known, mission accomplished. So John 1, 18, Jesus' mission was to make the Father known. John 14, 9, I've done my job. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, now let's go back to, this, to, 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 to the, what's, what's going on. All right, now skip down now. And we'll see, I'm gonna, we're going to cover a couple more verses, but look at verse 16 now. Would that be literal? If you see him, you see the Father, literally seeing? In the sense of nature, yes. If, if you mean literally in the sense that you've seen the actual person of the Father, then, then I'd say no. But if you've seen the nature of the Father, the then yes, absolutely, exactly. And again, the word literal just throws us off so much because it's just it's mis misunderstood. It conveys things that we don't always agree. All right, John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Mm -hmm. right? And the word helper here is a really hard word to translate. The best thing that you can do is just compare English translations. Um, um, uh, I won't take the time to do it now, so make sure I finish up everything here. Um, but it means a counselor, an advocate, one who comes alongside. Yeah. Uh, it, it conveys all of the above. It's not just one of those translations uh, isn't sufficient. They, they kind of all do. In fact, one translation actually leaves it in the Greek, parakletos. Mm -hmm. I'll send you another paraklete, which doesn't translate the word at all. Okay. Um, the point of that is this. Now, look what it says. And he, will and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Now, note the beginning of the chapter. I will be with you. Right? Let me go back to John four, the beginning of John 14. I'm leaving. Oh, 
I'm leaving, but don't be troubled because I'm going to go prepare a place for you, verse 3, so that where I am, there you may be also. Now we'll go to verse 16 and note, it's the Spirit who's going to be with us. Wait a minute, I thought we were going to be with Jesus. And the answer is, in a Trinitarian nature then, the way Jesus is with us forever is through the Spirit. Remember Matthew 8, 28? And lo, I am with them, I will be with you always. Because I'm giving you the Spirit, and the Spirit, we're, we're one. So if I give you the Spirit, I am with you. Okay? I will, note verse 18 now. I will not leave you as orphans. So note, the common interpretation of this passage is, Jesus says, I'm checking out, I'm going up here, and I'll come back later on and get you and bring you back up there. But that means he's leaving us as orphans for a while. But I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to give you the Spirit. And know what the Spirit's going to do. Uh, verse uh, 17 that I skipped. Uh, that is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Okay, now we'll keep going. Um, verse uh, Judas, verse, not Iscariot, verse 22 says, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us but not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Wait a minute. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. All right. The word for abode is the exact same phrase used at the beginning of this chapter, where it says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. It's the same word. The dwelling places that Jesus is going away to make, see, I have to go away so I can send the Spirit who will dwell with you. But there was no lapse in time. Well, there's 50 days, right? Well, from, I mean, from, from, I mean, from the Holy Spirit, from Him leaving in the Holy Spirit. Well, there's 10 days. So when He ascends into heaven after 40 days, 10 days later on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. Mm-hmm. There's 10 days. That, that's correct. So for 10 days, He left them as orphans. But obviously, yeah, yeah that, 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 that'd be the only way. You, well, He kind of left them as orphans, but obviously that's the point. Hey, it was only for 10 days. You guys were cool, but for, for 10 days. <laughs> then the Holy Spirit came, right? All right. Note, the context then is, I'm, I gotta go so that the Spirit can come and the Spirit's gonna dwell amongst you now let's go back a little bit earlier to something I think Ralph uh, asked about earlier in John 14 uh, verse uh, uh, back earlier I'm sorry I was in verses 1 and 2 so we'll go to verse 12 um, uh, John 14 verse 12 I say to you that he who believes in me the works that I do he will do also and greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. This is a commissioning passage. He's preparing the disciples for the ministry because the Gentiles have come and it's time for him to go. My hour has come. And the first thing you have to do is you have to be clean because you're going to be temples. You're entering the, 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 he washes their feet. You have to be clean. The next thing you have to understand is, I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you my spirit. Now, note the difference, by the way. If we beheld his glory, because Jesus is God, is, God, is God in human flesh, but the benefit now becomes is, but the temple is only in one place. 
But now if the Holy Spirit comes and invades all of our hearts, then th- th- we're all the temple, and, and now the temple presence of God is multiplying. Mm-hmm. Right? And going out, and going out, and going out. You should have asked me, and I would have given you living water, and you would never thirst again. Mm. It's this coming of the Spirit. It's all about the coming of the Spirit. The coming of, and what's the coming of the Spirit going to do? He's going to equip you to do greater works than I did. Because note the Gentile mission is what he's talking about. He's preparing them for the mission of the Gentiles. Okay? And the reason why this is so... Let me cut to the end now, just make sure I get there uh, before, before, before time uh, runs out. That's it. The reason why this is so significant is this. We tend to simplify the gospel to where it's about Jesus dying for my sins and me believing in him and having eternal life and I'm good to go. And now I just, I just kind of like got to be good between now and remember I put therapeutic, moralistic deism on the board last week? Right? Yeah. It, it's just, I just have to be good people, moralistic now. And it's therapeutic. It makes me feel better. And God's distant. But Jesus say, no, he's going to dwell in you. And he's going to empower you to fulfill the mission. The mission that Jesus came to do is the one that we are now called to continue. It's about the church being on mission. And what's the purpose of the mission? To make God known. How? By loving one another. Because that's God is love. And when we love one another, we display God's nature. To the creation. You see, the purpose of mission is not to make him known, but to make him known so that they can actually know him. (laughs) Not so they can know about him and then we can just condemn them to hell for not accepting him. We want to make him known in a way that they accept him Mm -hmm. and receive him. It's about the the New Testament then. In other words, what we're going to see now from Acts on, really from John, John, the middle of John on, but through Acts, is the fact that the Spirit now is the person of God present in the life of the church so that we can carry forth the mission. And that mission is to make Christ known. Now, being good people and moral people and not doing that and, do, and, and doing that you know, and, and loving your neighbor and not hating and, uh, and not being greedy, that is part of it. But it's part of it because that's how we make God known. Not because I have some moral obligation to be good and to not be bad. So I can go to heaven someday. But so that we can bring God's presence in a dynamic way here. Does that make sense? Yes. Right. Now, let me continue this thought here uh, as, as we proceed for, uh, further. Okay. Now, let me go to the temple. Let me go to the temple theme, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna su- support this, or I'm gonna go back to Ezekiel 43:48 in the Gospel of John, at least, uh, and then we'll summarize that point, and then I'll finish up this theme of creation, and then we'll, and then we'll uh, close with the Gospel of John. Ezekiel 43:48. Right. Uh, I'm not gonna go there. Uh, I'm gonna refer back to it, but let's let's finish that thought now. Okay. When all right, here we go. Jesus is the temple, right? Yeah. Water comes from the temple, right? Right. Right. That water refers to the Spirit, right? Easy. When Jesus is on the cross and they pierce him to his side, what comes out? Water. Why the water? Because he's the temple. And the water's coming from the threshold of the temple. The water that comes out of his side is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 43-48, symbolizing that Jesus is giving us the Spirit. Okay. So when it flows down to the Dead Sea, what, what capitalize on that? Just it, it's just simply this idea that the whole creation, Roman, it's going to be Romans chapter 8, the whole creation is, is longing for its redemption, its yeah, restoration. Yeah. Yes. And so it's this whole redemptive, restor- restorative creation thing. So there's no more Dead Sea, it's all alive. Yeah. But it's a, it's a new heavens and a new earth 
and redeemed, restored, re uh, resurrected. How's that way? That wouldn't make sense. Okay. Now, let's go a little further. Right, I'm going to ask you to be skeptical um, for the last 10, 10 minutes or so. I'll try to finish up a little bit before 930 if we can. Um, but here we go. If we are to read John with a creation theme, which seems to make sense because he referred to Genesis 1 uh, in, in John 1.1, 1, 1, so we seem to have that going on, then is it possible that we're to read chapters 19 and 20 in light of creation and new creation? Okay. And, and here's what I'm getting at. Jesus is crucified on Friday, right? That seems to be, and by the way, I think the Gospel of John does have Jesus being crucified on Friday. You may have read some, some uh, works out that, this, that suggest that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus on crucified on Friday, but John has him crucified on Thursday. No, that, that, that doesn't fly at all. The day of preparation um, uh, in, in uh, John 19 is, a, is another uh, way of saying Friday. It's day of preparation for the Sabbath, not the day of preparation for the Passover. Oh. Um, the day of preparation is synonymous with Friday. And so, when he uses it there, uh, I don't think John has any conflict with Matthew, Mark, and Luke there. All right. Now, in the Gospel of John, we find out that Pilate um, wants to release Jesus. It's, this is a, it's, it's from John 18 to John 19. He's trying to get out of it. There's a lot going on there. If we have some time uh, in our next discussion, we'll do a little bit of New Testament history, and we'll learn maybe, if we have time, we'll learn a little bit about Pilate. He's in a really bad spot, and he's in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And he cannot afford the Jews to turn him into Rome. Because if, if the Jews turn him into Rome, he will lose his head. Well, well, but he'll be asked to commit suicide. That's what a Roman uh, official does. You commit suicide. Right. He's already been turned in before. He's in trouble now. He had friends in, in Rome. He doesn't have those friends any longer. And the Jews are like, he's claiming to be king. That's treason. And I have, you know, you know are you a king? Well, my kingdom is not from this world. <coughs> So you are a king then. Well, yeah, but my, my, it's not from this world. Because if it were, my men would become fighting. Remember, note the nature of the kingdom of God is not the way the kingdom of the world works. Mm -hmm. The kingdom of God works through love and sacrifice and dying. Right. The kingdom of the world works through power and lust and money and sex and military, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. right. Now, so Pilate says, all right, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll, um, I'll give you a choice between Jesus or Barabbas. Which one do you want? Sure, they're going to pick Jesus. No, we want you to release Barabbas. Oh, that didn't work. Because Barabbas is a, is a murderer, he's an insurrectionist, he's not good for the people, they don't like Barabbas. Sure, they're going to have Jews released, but they don't, and they pick Barabbas. All right, that doesn't work. All right. They bring him into the palace at the beginning of chapter 19, and they have him beaten. They mock him, they spit in his face, they put a crowd of thorns, blood flowing down his face, he's all beaten up, and they bring him out, John 19, verse, six, uh, verse 5 says, Pilate said, Behold the man, which is a Latin phrase, ecce homo, which is a famous phrase, it means behold the man. And Pilate's basically saying, look at this despicable guy. It's another example of irony. Behold the man. He's despicable. Is this good enough? If I beat them bad enough, I, I know you want him killed, but surely this is enough. And they say, crucify him. But here's the question. It's the sixth day, isn't it? And Jesus is, behold the man. On the sixth day, God made Adam and Eve. Is Jesus the man? As in the Adam? Maybe so. All right, now what happens? At the end of the sixth day, when Jesus is on the cross, John 19, verse 30. That's right, that's right, that's right. I'm, I'm, you, I'm telling you, be skeptical. Don't believe me for a little while. See if I can convince you. Here we go. 
When Jesus received the sour wine, John 19, verse 30, he said, it is finished. At the end of the sixth day, God said, and he rested. The next day is Saturday. And he rested in the temple, in the tomb. John 20, verse 1 then, says this. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, right? Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. Now, for a second, skip down to verse 19, I believe it is. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the biblical writers do not re repeat something unless it's something significant. We know it's the first day of the week. He told us in verse 1. Why is he repeating it's the first day of the week in verse 19? Because he wants you to know it's the first day of the week. Okay. Now we go back. Jesus appears, rises from the dead on the first day of the week. Okay. And the disciples go to the tomb, and they, and they stoop in. They don't see him. The women come back. Um, Mary, verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb, and she wept. She saw two angels, verse 12. The angel said, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And it could be because she's inside the tomb, and maybe a three-foot three opening, maybe she can't see him, or maybe her tears, we don't know, but she doesn't recognize it's Jesus. Okay. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Walked in the garden, huh? <laughs> Who's the first gardener in the Bible? Adam. Adam and Eve were gardeners. They were to care for and cultivate the garden. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I'll take and she and Jesus said to her, Mary, and she apparently heard her his voice and recognized the voice is what I'm thinking happens. Um, and she turned to him in, in Hebrew and said Rabboni, which means teacher. He said, Stop clinging, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father, and your Father, and my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. But so Jesus uh, said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Note the missional sending there. Mm -hmm. I am, the Father sent me to represent the Father and to make him known, and now I'm sending you. It's missional, guys. It's missional. The Gospels are a mission, and that's what we are to be about, is to making God known. Okay? This will be the theme for the rest of the way now, uh, uh, through Acts and the rest of, the rest of our studies. All right. Now, um, verse 22. When he said this, he breathed on them. Yeah. Genesis 2, verse 7. Adam, God breathed on Adam and he became a living being. It's new, it's new creation, isn't it? And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's new creation. On the sixth day, Jesus was the man, the true human. On the seventh day, he rested. On the first day of the new creation, he rises from the dead as the gardener, thinking he's the gardener, but he's not. He's beyond that. He's more than that. And then he breathes on them, and they become new creations. Right? 
Ezekiel 37. Mm-hmm. Oh, son of man, can these bones live? Yeah. Remember, are you remember that passage? Yeah. I don't know. And he says, breathe on them and they will live. The exact same word, breathe on them, is the same word in the Greek version of Genesis 2 that's also used in the Gospel of John. The Valley of Dry Bones has come alive. God has restored his people and he's commissioned his people with the Holy Spirit and now what's Paul going to say? You are the temple of God. And what's the significance? Therefore be holy. See, it's not about moralism. It's about being holy because we are filled with the Spirit of God and take the temple presence of God to the nations. It's our task, it's our mission. So, yes. So you said something earlier and you were very to some of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. You didn't say that, but you was quoting that scripture and how a lot of people are prepared to go to heaven. Yeah, okay. And we're supposed to be prepared to live here. Thy will be That's right. in earth as it is in here. And everything you're saying, Christ is the second Adam. And you know, with the original Adam, God had a colonization program, uh, subdue the earth, subdue the planet. Correct. And everything you're talking about now re- just reiterates that. Exactly. Let me add to it as well. Yes. There's a lot of Christians yes. that think that war and violence have to happen in the Middle East before Jesus returns. Mm-hmm. And they see war and violence in the Middle East and they rejoice. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Mm-hmm. That's the conflict. If we are to take the temple presence of God to the nations and fulfill the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is one of peace, yeah. then we should be trying to broker peace amongst the nations. Yeah. Within the nation and amongst the nations. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is Martin Luther King. This is the justice. This is the whole call. It's all of that. Right? It's racial reconciliation. It's justice. It's, it's Robert Kraft. Sorry, I'm from Boston, but, and I'm a Patriots fan. But it's, it's, it's sex trafficking in the United States. We should be the ones stepping in saying, this is wrong, and advocating for the weak and the oppressed. This is what Jesus does in, in the synagogue in Nazareth. I came to set the captives free. And what's the church's mission? To set the captives free. But Lord, you give them something to eat. Oh, we don't have any food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a loaf of bread in the boat, remember? Mm-hmm. It's Jesus. If we, all we need is Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, to do so. That's why Acts is going to begin with, hey, okay, you go to the nations, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, but don't go anywhere yet, because you can't do it unless the Spirit comes. That's right. Right. So, all right, that's, that's any questions? Mm-hmm. All right. So you see how John is really pointing us to the Spirit? I mean, it's the Gospel of John. It's about Jesus. That's fine. I'm a, uh, but it's really pointing us to the Spirit, and it's pointing us to our mission. Right. So note, John actually kind of combines the Gospel and Acts, at least the beginning of Acts at the end, at the end of his Gospel here. All right. But, but the, the key is that we have to presently be yes. and do exactly where we are. Sure. In order for God to use us the way that he wants show us his glory within right. our own relationship with him. So. Right. Alright, so I would like you to make sure that you include in your description of the, what's the kingdom of God and on your exam then, right, that it's about uh, uh, um, uh, the re- restoration of creation. It's about uh, redemption and the captives and the blind receiving sight and, and the, the, fa- the year of jubilee. Right? Where all are fed and all are well and that, this is the essence of the kingdom of God and, and what it entails. And it's our mission and task now to proclaim that kingdom. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. All right, Father, we thank you for this day.
I thank you for my brothers and sisters in the Lord. We've done a lot tonight in the last couple of weeks, and I know that a lot of it's not going to stick, but I pray that you'll help my brothers and sisters just to continue to, to immerse themselves in the Gospels and the story of Jesus and the compelling power of the Spirit of God and that you would equip us as your saints, as your people, as your tabernacles, as your temples to be indwelt by the power of your Spirit, to be filled anew with the power of your Spirit and to deny the flesh and its desires and instead to walk in the fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For as we do so, Lord Jesus, we make you known to the nations, and that includes my brother who doesn't know you, that includes our family members and our kids, perhaps, or maybe our spouses sometimes, or maybe our cousins or our parents or our neighbors or our co-workers or our friends. Uh, Lord Jesus, may we make you known by loving one another, even loving our enemies, knowing that that may result in persecution, oppression, and opposition. But if a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, then it gives birth to more. And we pray, Lord, indeed, that thy will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Three weeks, I think, is when we're on next.